0: Well, this morning, we get to continue in our series through the book of Romans. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and take that out. Flip that dude open to Romans chapter 14, or scroll there if you are a phone user. It's fine, too. We don't discriminate. Our, our passage is very applicable to that today, whether you use a paper Bible or whether you use a digital Bible. Matters of conscience, right? You're, we're going to get to it. Just bear with me. So if you're judging your neighbor next to you who's using their phone, pay attention to our sermon today. All right, so the past few weeks, last week, Scott started out chapter 14 for us, and he um, he opens up this chapter, Paul opens up this chapter, um, basically by addressing us in the church, the people of the church. He's speaking to the church at Rome, but these, these things are applicable to us as well. As he's is addressing them because they are, He's maybe he's noticing or he's, anticipating issues within the church where they're quarreling over certain things, certain ideas, certain uh, practices that people are doing. And so he he begins to give these instructions to the church about how they are to navigate these issues within the body of Christ, within the family of God. These are inner house issue types of discussions. These aren't with non-believers. These aren't how to evangelize. These aren't how to engage culture, anything like that. This is all sort of an in-house type of discussion that Paul is opening up for us here at the beginning of chapter 14. And, and really these issues that he's talking about, a good way to summarize these things would be these are issues of conscience. He's talking about issues of conscience, matters of conscience that uh, people may disagree upon in the church. Um, there are things in God's word, as we read his word to us, that are very clear. There are things that are clear and that are clearly Spoken about by God to us. Do not lie. That's clear. We see that in the Bible. It's not like a, a debate about whether we should lie. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Clarity. We have clarity on things like that. Where God speaks about them. Do not preach another gospel than the one that was handed down to us. From Christ to the apostles. It's clear. You can't just make up your own gospel. But there are other things about our lives as Christians that are less clear, that the, that the Bible may, may hint about or we can infer or we can draw conclusions about based upon other things, but they're, but they're less explicitly clear from God's Word as we read through it. God's Word doesn't address every single issue down to the letter of the law, right? Whether or not to use a paper Bible or a digital Bible. It doesn't say, right? It just says use a Bible. So we can, we can, we can have conversations about things like that. And at the beginning of this chapter, he's addressing some of these things. And, and one of the things that he talks about at the beginning is this issue of, of whether or not to eat meat or certain kinds of meat. This was a big deal to some of those in the church in Rome. Like, what kind of meat should we eat? Should we even eat meat? Is it okay for us to eat bacon now? Can we eat, can we smoke a, a pork, you know, a pork butt on our smoker? Or do we have to use, right, yeah, we got some, we got some, some smokers out here. And a lot of these, because a lot of these people that he's speaking to were either from a Jewish background or were very familiar with the Jewish background and customs. And so there was a lot of these things that were, as they were transitioning out of the old covenant into the new, they were trying to figure out what do we do with all of these things? What do we do with all the eating things and all the, all of the, the, the things that we had had as a very much that have marked us as a culture, what do we do with them now? And so Paul's saying, okay, we need to figure out how to address these within the family of God in a way that's actually helpful. And he gives these sort of two categories for us. He gives weak and strong. Probably not the categories that I would have used because it sounds kind of mean, right? Like, well, you're weak and I'm strong. But, but there's something to this. He's given these two categories for us of weak and strong. And, and, and he's acknowledging within these discussions and within these disagreements about people's opinions on things with this sort of with these sort of categories that he's given us that there is somebody who's right and somebody who's wrong. Everybody's just not right. It's not that we go about and say, well, you can have your truth and I can have my truth. It's not just relativism. He's, say, he's not saying that. He's, he's saying somebody actually is right and somebody actually is wrong, but that's okay on some things. There's room for, there's room for disagreement without uh, overturning the unity within the family of God. And, and it's important for us to, to keep our priorities straight that there are, there are important things in the church that we should, we should go to battle about. The gospel. We go to battle for the truth of the gospel. We don't, we don't negotiate on it. And there are things that are more important in the church than just being right about every issue. There's things that we hold higher than just being right. The gospel is more important than being right. Loving our brothers and sisters is more important than being right on every issue. The unity of the church is more important than just being right about every minute detail of what it means to be a Christian. We hold those things higher than some of these things that he's talking about. And really what God is doing here, God is just just showing us an example of really good parenting. He's showing us what it means to be a really good parent. right? He's talking to his children, his kids, uh, all of us in the church, and he's saying, here's how you interact with each other. As my children, here's what it looks like. Here's, and he's given us good principles. This isn't a passage about parenting, but God is parenting us in and through this passage. He's the father noticing that his children are quarreling and giving tools to help us, as, to the, keep us from quarreling. And if you've ever been around kids from the age of like, 2 to 18, you know that kids love to argue and quarrel about their opinions. They love it. It's one of their favorite things. They look for things to argue and to quarrel about. And that's just how kids are, right? Their opinion of who gets to ride in the front seat. thats a big deal. Who gets to have the TV remote? That's a big deal, right? These are things that kids can go to to blows over, right? You can have actual fights. Some of you are nodding your heads, like, yeah, either I got into a fight with my brother or my kids, right? We know that these things are ultimately not life and death situations. These are things that as parents, you look and you're like, guys, why are we arguing over who gets to pick what show we're watching? But God is noticing this in his church, and his people. He's saying, guys, these are not things that rise to the level of quarreling that is happening around you right now. That's what God is showing us here. And children sh- struggle, brothers and sisters, siblings struggle to live in unity with one another because they are young, because they are immature in some ways. They're not fully developed in their thinking. And that's okay. It's, it's, it's okay. We don't hold that against them. He talks about at the beginning of the chapter, we don't despise the weak. We don't despise our kids for, for not being fully developed at the age of four. One might say that kids are weak in their thinking on a lot of things. And that's okay. They're supposed to be. Because they're children. I don't know if you've ever had just an incredibly irrational argument with a three-year-old. I have. I saw something the other day where a kid, he, his dad was videoing, it. he was having a conversation with his kid, he's probably four or five years old, and the kid's getting in the fridge and he's getting out a cheese stick. And the dad's like, what are you getting out of the fridge? And the kid's like, I'm getting a cheese stick out. He's like, he's like what did we just have for dinner? And he's like, pizza? And he's like, and what did you just ask me to take off of your pizza? And he's like, the cheese? And he's like, but you're going to the fridge and you're getting a cheese stick and eating a cheese stick? And the kid was like, yeah, I don't, I don't see a problem with this. What do you, <laughs> dad, what's the issue? And the dad's like, do you not see? Like, you just told me to take the cheese off your pizza and now you're going to get a cheese stick out of the fridge? Totally irrational. But to the kid, he's like, what do you mean? It makes perfect sense to me. And the dad wasn't, like, mocking him or ridiculing him. He was just laughing at the kid in his childishness. I remember one time we were driving to school with my, I was driving my kids to school, a similar situation, we, and we were driving, in, and right in front of us, there was a, an accident, it was a pretty minor one, but it was, happened right in front of us, and so all the kids saw what happened, and everybody's like, whoa, did you see that, it was crazy, and so we sort of, like, drive around it, and you, and you know, you could see that the cars were sort of, like, out of place, but a little bit later, we're driving, and, and one of my little ones in the back says, dad, I, we, we pass a car that's for sale on the side of the road, and so it's, like, f- sort of facing the wrong direction, and they're like, Dad, I just saw another accident. I saw another wreck. And I'm like, okay, well, I don't think so. You know, I think that was actually, you know, I try to explain what I thought it was. And I'm like, no, no, Dad, it was, a, it was an accident. I saw it was a car that was, that was wrecked. And, you know, so I had to do this sort of, like, calculation in my mind. Okay, do I want to spend the next 10 minutes <laughs> explaining to this small child about cars and how you sell them, and sometimes you park them on the road, like, I counted the cost and I, was, I decided that it was better to just go, oh really, you did? You saw a car that was wrecked? Oh my goodness, well I hope they're okay, right? <laughs> I just, I, I, didn't, you know, I didn't want to get into a quarrel because this, this little one was totally convinced in their mind that they had just seen a wreck. But it, of course it wasn't, because I knew the full context. I didn't despise them for their opinion, I didn't, I didn't hold that against them, mock them, or ridicule them. So God, God is teaching us this. He's, he, God is a good parent, and he wants to help his children to live in unity together. So we can be united in the things that are most important, and we can hold them in, with closed fists, but the things that aren't, we can, we can hold them with open, open hands with each other and, and have helpful conversations about them. And there's an underlying truth to this, right? The underlying truth to this reality is that our first point is that we are accepted by God by faith and not by our behavior. This is what he's been, he's spent the first 12, 13 chapters talking about this reality. We are accepted by God. What makes us acceptable to God is not first and foremost our behavior. We're accepted by God because of our faith in Christ, And so that's what makes us acceptable and unites us and reconciles us to God. But Ephesians 2 tells us that's also what unites us to one another. This is what brings us together as God's people. And so we can can operate in these lower tier issues with open-handedness because our, our salvation doesn't rise and fall based upon these things. And we see that in verse 5. In our text today, Paul continues sort of with these examples of things that that are happening in that context that he's saying should not be things that we should divide over. Look in verse 5. He says, One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Now, what it's talking about here, when he's talking about days, it's not just like, oh, you have your favorite day of the week, and I have my favorite day of the week. I'm team Thursday, and you're team Tuesday, and Thursday's better than, no. It's talking, about, he's likely referencing the Jewish sort of calendar, the feasts and festivals and, and the Sabbath. There's this great discussion about what to do with the Sabbath day now that we're in the, this new covenant. Do we, still, do we still hold to the same Sabbath? There's a lot of conversations happening about this. There's a lot of conversations happening about that now. There's entire denominations now who are organized around this primary focal point of ours, we believe that the Sabbath is on this day, even though we don't. And there's there's disagreements about that. Some felt that the, the Sabbath should have still been on the seventh day, as it had been. We should still be observing it. Others believe that we should instead gather and in worship on the Lord's Day, on Sunday, when, when Christ raised from the dead. Paul says, look, this isn't a, there, somebody's right and somebody's wrong, but this isn't an issue that is worthy of breaking fellowship over. It's not an issue that rises to that level. There is, there is a consideration here to make. There is one person is right and one person is wrong, But until we get to that understanding, we don't have to break fellowship until we all agree, is what he's saying. And notice what he says. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. This is important. This is an important thing for him to say. Why? Because we can't just adopt certain practices without examining them first, is what he's telling us. We can't just say, well, this is just what we've always done. We've always just had the Sabbath on Saturday. So that's what we have to keep doing. You say, no, you, you need to be convinced, not just because it's what you've always done. You need to be convinced from, from Scripture and from God's Word and from, from the Holy Spirit, right? This is how we arrive at these conclusions now. It's not just, it's not just what we've always done. Our positions now must be examined, he's saying. We have to examine all of our positions. The things that we do, customs that we hold. Why do we do what we do? Why do we meet together on Sunday in this room? Why do I get up here and, and Scott, and why do we sing? Why do we preach? Why do we, why do we do all these things? Are we just doing them because, well, that's just, that's just what churches do, right? Or, or is there something deeper here? Is there something else that's informing The things that we're doing as a church. Why do we have MCs? Seems kind of a weird thing. Why would we do that? Is there anything, or is it just like, well, this just seems like a good idea that would be fun for us to do as a church, so let's do it. It sounds cool. Or is there something informing it? Is there something that's giving from from God and from His Word and from the Spirit that is informing the decisions that we're making about the practices that we're participating in as His believers? Paul's saying we, we can't just flippantly go in and say, well, this is what I think is right, so this is what we're going to do. He's saying, no, you have to be convinced in your own mind. You have to be convinced from Scripture, from tradition, from what is handed down to us. It's not wise to just simply adopt something just because we've always done it. And on the flip side, it's not wise to reject something just because, well, so-and-so said that we shouldn't do this, so this is my grandma said, or this guy I heard on TV or the radio, they said we shouldn't do this, so that means, no. Are you convinced? How did you arrive at the position that you have? Have you given it thought? Have you looked into Scripture? Have you tried to study it out? Have you consulted wise people? Are you convinced about it in your own mind, or did you just sort of accumulate it along the way? You're not talking about flippancy here. Think, no, every, both, both sides should be serious about what they're doing, but they're serious about it with an open hand. We're not, we're not going to battle over these things and, and breaking fellowship over them, but that doesn't mean that we just ignore them. And again, we're talking here about issues of lower importance. right? These are, these are third-tier issues that we're talking about here. There are things that rise above this. This is where I think it's helpful for us to do something that I've heard called theological triage. If you're, if you've been, if you're familiar with the medical world, right, somebody comes into the hospital and you have, to do, you have to do triage. You have to see, okay, how serious is this person? What are their injuries? What are their symptoms? Where do they need to go? How, what, what is the level of urgency that, with which we should treat this person, right? Well, we have to do sort of the same thing with with our doctrines and our theology, the things that we think, the things that we see in the Bible, we have to, we have to look at them and go, okay, how serious is this? Is this, a, is this a first-tier theological issue that if you disagree with, you're probably not a Christian? Or is this a third-tier thing that we can go, look, I don't know, you, we disagree, but we can still be in the same church, we can still, we can still do fellowship together. Maybe there's, there's a spectrum, there's, there's, a, there's a middle ground of some of those things. But we have to have sort of this category in our minds as we think about the things that God tells us. We have to be able to to order them properly in order of importance. We have to do triage with the things that God teaches us. Do we know the difference between, say, the doctrine of the Trinity and whether or not Christians should use playing cards? There's some places where you go where you might see those things as somewhat equal. They might be treated as, as equal things, where if, if you play with playing cards, you are not a Christian, and you are in serious trouble, and you need to repent immediately from playing with playing cards. I know people who think that. Is that the same level where we would say, if you don't believe in the Trinity, you might not be a Christian, but do we treat other things with the same level of intensity and say, well, well, you don't, you go watch R-rated movies at the movie theater, so that means you're not a Christian. Is that the same level? Should we be treating those things equally in our minds and our hearts as we think about fellowship with other believers? I would say probably not. Are we able to tell the core things from the non-core things? And Paul says that in these things, in these non-core things, lower tier things that we should act according to our conscience. We should act according to our conscience. These are issues of the freedom of Christian conscience. And that God gives us all a conscience. Our conscience is what the this, this sense within us that helps us to determine what is right and wrong, right? We all have it. And we should use it. And our conscience doesn't go away when we get saved. We still have our conscience, but our conscience is now informed by God's word and God's spirit. And he teaches us, and he helps us to use our conscience in these areas that are less clear from his word. So in matters of lesser importance, we act according to our conscience. Let's look at verse 6. The one who observes the day, again, he's talking about these days again, right? The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. You see how he's, he's saying both of these sides are acting according to their conscience, right? They're doing it from a position of God, I want to honor you in this. And he's saying, that's okay, that's good. They're acting according to the conscience that God has given them, and and it's okay. They're both acting according to the conscience. And this is one of the most important questions for us as we try to examine these things, as we try to look at these things in our lives, say, okay, how should I live in this area? What should I do? This doesn't seem like like a core thing, but it seems like it probably has some relevance to what I should be doing in my life when we're examining our lives and our positions about things, we should ask ourselves that question. Can I honor the Lord by doing this? Can I honor God in this action? Is it possible for me to to feel like I'm doing this to the glory of God? That's That's a good and helpful question. It may or may not fully answer everything for us, But it's a good category for us to have. Like, can I honor God by doing this? Sometimes it'll be pretty clear. Like, no, I probably can't. Can I give thanks to God while I'm doing this? If I can't answer that, yes, then probably shouldn't do it, right? He's leaving room here for freedom of conscience. And he's he's allowing space here in the church for our consciences to be calibrated. He's acknowledging that We all come in, just like Scott was talking about last week, we all come into this faith as children in the faith. This is how we're described. And we all then have to grow up in the faith. And some of us are further along the road than others. Some of us have been doing this for 50, 60 years. Some of us have been doing this for two months. That's okay. He's acknowledging this reality. Just like we don't despise our children for being children, we don't despise those Whose, cal- whose consciences are still being calibrated by the Spirit. And just like he tells them not to judge those who are the stronger, we should acknowledge our humility before the Lord in this. And we should ask ourselves, can I honor the Lord in doing this? And notice that in this passage, he doesn't, he doesn't demand that the weaker brother immediately change his position. He never says, okay... I, I'm Paul, and I'm showing up on the scene, and I'm dropping the hammer, right? The meat's good, so you guys get it together and start eating the meat, <laughs> right? He doesn't do that. He says, no, it's okay. He, he even le- allows room for them after he shows up on the scene as an apostle who's inspired by the Spirit, writing these words to them, and says, it's okay that they don't eat the meat. Give them, give them time. Give them space. The Lord, will, the, the Lord will grow them out of what he wants to grow them out of. That's his job, not yours and mine. He's the one who does the sanctifying. And remember, he's still acknowledging that some of them are right and some of them are wrong. It's still there. On some of these issues, it is good for us to learn how to have the Spirit help us develop our conscience, fine-tune our conscience. Spirit works in and through us. If we believe that, and we do, We trust that the Spirit is at work in us, and we trust that the Spirit is at work in our brothers and sisters. If their motives are true, I'm trying to honor the Lord in this. Okay, if you truly mean that, and you truly believe that, I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt, and I'm going to give you space to have the Lord sharpen your conscience. It's It's our position. He's talking about our position before one another and our position before our Lord. And so... I want I want us to look at this helpful flow chart. I don't know if you can see that very well, but there's a helpful flowchart that I, that I found, and I think it really helps us to kind of think through some of this stuff, right? This is put together by a guy named Vaughn Roberts. He has some really good books out there. You should check him out. but this 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 flow chart sort of helps us. If you can see it, it may be a little small, but so we you know how flow charts work, right? We start at the top and we ask this question, right? As we're examining our position on something, or what we should do or not do, the first question we ask is, Does the Bible allow it? And if the answer is no, okay, guess what? We do not do that thing. Simple, right? Okay, boom, easy. Does the Bible say yes or no? Should I go out and cheat on my wife? Let me see. Uh, Oh, no, I should not do that. Okay, good. That one's clear. I don't have to have discussions, and we don't have to have like a panel meeting and call all the pastors together. Like, guys, listen, I really need help on this. It's like, no, you don't do it. Got it. Okay, well, what if the Bible doesn't explicitly say yes or no on it? Well, does the Bible allow it? Well, yeah, the Bible maybe says, maybe even the Bible says yes, or it's not clear. Does my conscience allow it? If my conscience says no, then I shouldn't do that thing. If you're like, ah, you know what, the Bible's not clear on this, but I just have a feeling like I probably shouldn't be doing this. Good, don't do that thing, right? And don't judge somebody else for doing it, if the Bible is not clear. And then we go further, right? You probably can't see those questions, right? There's three further questions that we should ask as we're trying to discern. Okay, does, the, does my conscience allow it? Okay, yeah, I think my conscience allows it. Well, here's three questions that we, should, we can ask each other. One, what is the effect on other Christians? Does this affect my brothers or sisters negatively in any way? Love is more important than knowledge. Second question, what is the effect on non-Christians? How will this represent Christ to the world around me? Will this adorn Christ? Will this glorify him? Will this, will this cause people to, to exalt him? If not, probably shouldn't do it. The gospel is more important than our rights. We've seen this over the past few years. Number three, what is the effect on my spiritual life? Spiritual health is more important than freedom within, within what God allows us. Right? There could be, there could be some of us in here who are able to watch shows that some of us aren't. Some of us may go, you know what, when I watch that show, I just it does, it does things in my mind and it, it takes me to places that I really am not a fan of and I'm not able to really process through them well and so I probably shouldn't watch that show. And others of us might go, "You know, okay, like I respect that and I'm not when you come over, I'm not going to pop that on my TV and right. But but for me it may be different. If it's if it's not blatantly, you know, s- sinful in, in its essence, we could we could have discussions about that, right? There are things that, that we can say, "Okay, is this is this having effect on those around me? Is this adorning Christ? Is this is this help, helpful for my spiritual life?" Am I doing things, good things, too much? That it's causing me to neglect my spiritual life? Then I, maybe I shouldn't do them as much, or maybe not at all, right? You see, all these categories can help us factor in as we're examining the things that we're doing in our lives. Just because something isn't overtly sinful, that doesn't mean that it's beneficial, Paul says, right? Not everything is beneficial for us. So hopefully this is helpful, right? So we have these three questions. Is it, is it what is the effect on other, on other Christians, what is the effect on non-Christians, and what is the effect on my spiritual health and my spiritual life? This can help us as we're thinking about issues of conscience, right? Okay, so hopefully we can continue to grow in this, right? Again, you, you may be thinking of people around you like, oh yeah, I know so-and-so, they really watch that show that I would never dream of watching that show, right? Oh, hold on, time out, right? This is what we're talking about, right? But wherever your mind is wanting to go, wherever the person that you're wanting to think of, this caricature in your mind, Paul's saying, hold on, turn it back to yourself first. Look at your own heart, look at your own life. Because at the end of the day, if we are believers, if we are Christ's, if we belong to him, he tells us that, the superseding truth, the truth that goes above this and around this and below this is that we are not our own. This is the point that he's trying to get us to. We do not belong to ourselves. We are not autonomous beings who get to call the shots in our lives, even as believers, especially as believers. In verse 7, he talks about this and he starts to give this sort of theological reasoning behind all of these things that he just said. In verse 7, he says, For none of us, lives to himself. And none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again. That he Might be Lord, both of the living and of the dead. This is the truth under the truth. This is what's holding up this entire passage. We do not belong to ourselves. We are not the kings of our own territory, of our own lives, of our own hearts. We have a king, we have a Lord. His name is Jesus. He came, He lived, He died, He rose from the dead proclaiming that he is the Lord of you when you're alive, and he is the Lord of you when you are dead. You cannot escape his lordship. You can accept it or not, but you cannot escape it. That's what it's saying. No matter where you go, even if you die, Jesus is still the Lord over you. There's nowhere to go. And all of us ultimately answer to him. This is our last point. God alone is judge. He is the judge. So when we look at our brothers and our sisters, we have to remember this: God alone is judge. Look at verse ten. So why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? He's talking weak. He's talking uh, weaker stronger, right? stronger weaker for we all stand before the judgment seat of God the weaker the stronger all of us for it is written as I live says the Lord every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God that doesn't mean that every tongue will confess their sins to God that means that every tongue on some day at some point will go oh yeah you actually are God Yeah, you are. You are God. There will be a recognition of God as He truly is by every soul that has ever been created. And every knee will bow before Him, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Everybody will give an account of their lives to God. Everyone will stand before Him, and we will not bring others up with us for contrast. We don't have anyone standing beside us to go, yeah, I mean, see, look, God, look at this guy. I mean, at least I'm not as bad as him, right? No, no. We go before him alone as ourselves with what we have to offer him. And when we see the word judgment here, when it's talking about between us, right, it says, why do you pass judgment on your brother? He's he's, he's talking here about this, this idea of the finality of judgment not saying that we shouldn't look at each other's lives and make judgments based upon whether we're doing something good or wrong or whether, you know, if, if you're living in blatant sin, I shouldn't go, well, I'm not supposed to judge. No, he's saying we don't, we don't judge them as in we don't, we don't try to determine one's acceptance before God. That's God's role. God is the one who determines acceptance before him. Ultimately, that's not our call towards each other. Keller says it like this, he says, we are to accept anyone that the Lord accepts in the gospel. And we are not to condemn anyone for whom there is no condemnation in the gospel. Did we catch that? If they are accepted by God in the gospel, who are you to say that you do not accept them as a brother and sister? Who are you to place condemnation on somebody to whom God declares in Christ, there is now therefore no condemnation on this person. That is not our place. We do not declare that over one another. We can encourage one another. There may be even times of rebuke for one another. But we do not cast that judgment on them. That is God's role. And one day, we will all stand before him every one of us, and we'll give an account of ourselves before him. And it will not be sufficient on that day, it will not be sufficient for us to say, God, you, you should really remember all the, all the times that uh, I ate the right food. You should really remember the, the times that I, really, I kept your Sabbath. I kept it on the right day even. God, I never missed a Sunday service. I never drank a drop of alcohol, God. My whole life. God, I never said a, a cuss word my whole life. I mean, that's got to count for something. No, God, guys, no, no, hold on. In that moment when we stand before Him, all of those things will be insufficient. Even if we can claim all of those things, it will be insufficient in and of itself. In that moment, what will matter is whether or not we are in Christ. That's what will matter. On that day, when we stand before Him and we are to give an account of ourselves, if that account does not say, paid in full by Jesus Christ, then nothing else counts. Nothing else matters. Nothing else is sufficient. There's no half payments. It's either Jesus paid it all or you paid none. Those are the two options when we stand before him. And if we are in Christ, and how do we get there? What was our first point, right? We do not come to him by our behavior. We come to him by faith. We come to him by clinging to him, by By releasing our sin to him and throwing ourselves at his mercy and saying, I have to have you. I place my trust, I place my faith, I throw myself into your arms. I'm sick of trying to save myself, and I'm going to go with your option now, I'm going to go with your plan. I'm going I'm to trust you for my salvation and stop trusting myself and whether or not I eat the right kinds of food or I observe the right kinds of days or I go to the right church or I read the right books or I follow the right people on Twitter or whatever the case may be. Those, those are not the things that make us righteous before God. The things that make us righteous before Him are given to us by Him. They're given to us By him, through Christ, and through Christ alone. This is what gives us freedom with each other now. This is what gives us the the ability to just breathe. It's okay. Let's breathe with each other. This is described really, really clearly for us in Hebrews chapter 10. I'll close my time by reading this. Hebrews 10 verse 19 says this. Therefore, brothers... Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. This is the judgment, right? This is the judgment throne of God. We can have confidence to enter into the holy place of God and stand before him ready to give an account. We can go in with confidence. Not in our ability, not in our behavior, not in our track record, not in our pedigree. We come in through our high priest who opened the veil by his blood. By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith See the confidence that he's he's trying to tell us about? You can have confidence. You can have assurance. Why? Because it doesn't depend on you. It depends on Christ. You can have assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from what? An evil conscience. Even if your conscience is evil, you can be clean and our bodies washed with pure water. This is what gives us the freedom. This is what gives us freedom to love our brothers and sisters and to agree about lesser things. Why? Because there's a greater truth over and above all of us that we come before God, we will stand before Him and give an account, and it will not be graded upon uh, a scale. It won't be graded on a curve. It'll be pass, fail, Christ or no Christ. And if you have Christ, no matter what you have done, no matter matter the degree to which you have sinned, His grace is sufficient. No matter the degree, His grace is sufficient. Let's pray. God, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for Your kindness to us. We thank You for this truth that helps us. And so, God, we ask that You do help us. Help us to sharpen our conscience before You, Help us to know how to live in a way that honors you and pleases you. But God, help us to, to resist the urge to keep trying to earn our salvation. Help us to, to work and to live and to love from our position of acceptance in you and not for our position of acceptance before you. And God, we need your help and your spirit to do that. And so we ask you for that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.